Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, New American Standard Bible. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-6, through 6, New American Standard Bible. Hello! Welcome to another episode of Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay, in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author, founder, and chief of Odd Names and Rhymes at Crystal Sea Books. R.D., we've been taking a look at the story of Noah and the Ark with a focus on whether the story is history or allegory. Today, I think we're going to begin to wrap up the Noah series before we start an entirely different topic. Is that the plan? That's the plan. I thought it would be a good idea before we change topics on Anchored by Truth to take a look back and see what we've covered so far about the Bible and about the Genesis flood account. My goal is to summarize some of the big points that we've discussed and begin to see how they fit into a larger context. We also want to see how the story of Noah continues to be relevant and to impact the Christian faith of the 21st century. Well, before we get into the review of Noah, how about if we listen to a devotional extract from Crystal C's book on prayer that we call Purposeful Prayers. Today, we're going to listen to some contemplations about God's omnipotence. Sounds good to me. Omnipotence. Omnipotence is an attribute of God that is often misunderstood. Consider this proverbial exchange between the wise old philosophy professor and his young Christian student. The professor asks, Do you believe in God? The Christian replies, Yes. The professor asks, Do you believe God can do anything? The Christian replies, Yes. The professor asks again, Can God make a rock so big that God can't lift it? The young Christian's error, and one that is frequently repeated, is believing that omnipotence The quality of being all-powerful means that God can do anything. Omnipotence does not mean that at all. Omnipotence means that God can do anything that can be done, provided that the action does not conflict with God's character. As many observers have pointed out, God cannot make a square circle or end his own existence. 
God cannot perform nonsensical actions, such as the square circle example. God cannot relinquish any of his attributes, such as his eternality. None of these cannots, however, takes away from God's omnipotence. It is possible to argue, albeit speciously, that there is at least one thing that men can do that God cannot. The Bible plainly states that God cannot lie. Clearly, men can and do lie. Does this mean that men possess a power that God does not, thereby debunking the notion that God is all-powerful? Certainly it is not. Lying is simply the misapplication of powers that men already possess. For example, rationality and speech. God's inability to lie, or do anything evil for that matter, does not diminish his power. It simply means that God's power will always achieve holy, righteous, and just ends. Again and again, the Bible draws attention to God's unmatched power, focusing on omnipotence as an attribute that distinguishes him from all other beings. Repeatedly, God's power is cited as controlling not only the affairs of men, but also the course of the heavens themselves. If God's superintendence of the heavens was impressive to the biblical writers, it should cause people today who have a vastly improved understanding of the universe's complexity and immensity to marvel at such magnificence. Perhaps there is no better illustration of omnipotence than the creation of the universe. The emergence of any form of an organized universe is the very definition of power under control. Ardent atheists constantly clamor for theists to show them evidence of God's existence, all the time walking around on the evidence and staring uncomprehendingly at it over their heads. Still, as impressive as the power to which such evidence points, that does not begin to define omnipotence. The power at work at that moment in time when the Big Bang occurred represents an infinitesimally small portion of God's power. When Genesis speaks of God as resting, it is not an indication that God was tired and needed to cease his labors. All such a description indicates is that God made a change in his activity, from that of creating to that of sustaining. God was not tired. He cannot be tired, even if he were to replicate creation a million times over. Therefore, the magnitude of the power to which Christians appeal when they present their prayers to God is so great, it is literally incomprehensible. Nevertheless, you will sometimes hear Christians say ruefully, the only thing we can do is pray for him. The irony of this observation is that the whispered prayer that stirs the hand of God dwarfs the most powerful force in the universe. Knowing of God's omnipotence should encourage us to pray in a way that enlarges our own vision and hopes. There is no limit to what God can accomplish. All things are possible with Him. Therefore, we should approach His throne with confidence and boldness, knowing that when He sovereignly elects to grant a petition, there is no power anywhere that can withstand it coming to fruition. In that piece, I especially like that in order to create the universe we see today, there had to be an enormous power at work. 
but it had to be a power under control. Power without control would produce nothing but chaos or destruction. But power under control produced the exact conditions that were needed on Earth to create what one author called a favored planet. There is a God, and He is the one who turned on the lights, and pays the cosmic power bill. Like the verses from Second Peter that we had at the start, pretty much everyone today assumes that somehow everything continues on, as if it had always been that way, as if there was never a time when the lights weren't on in the universe. Yep. It's a little worrisome to me that Peter connected the attitude that mocks the promise of God's return with the Genesis flood. Peter was warning the people of his day, and frankly his warning is still relevant today, that the God who created everything is still in control of it all. The flood reminds us that God is a God of holy righteousness in addition to being a loving creator. God's holiness means that sometimes He's going to pronounce judgment on part of His creation, and that should be both sobering and awe-inspiring to anyone who truly understands it. It reminds me of the famous exchange between one of the Pevensey girls in the Chronicles of Narnia and Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver tells the girls and the Pevensey boys that they're going to go meet Aslan, the Lion King, who of course represents Jesus in the story. Well, one of the little girls says to Mr. Beaver, She hopes that Aslan is a safe lion. Mr. Beaver retorts that of course Aslan isn't safe. He's a lion. But Mr. Beaver adds that he's good and he's the king. Well, too often that we think that because our God is a God of love, that he must behave in a way that meets with our approval. Well, in fact, it's the exact opposite. We must structure our lives so that we meet with his approval. God is a God of love. God is a God who's a king. And we would like for him to be safe, but the truth of the matter is, he's not any more safe than a wild lion is. So, Lewis's point was that God is good, but God's goodness so transcends ours that he must always be approached with reverence and awe. Yes, and the flood illustrates both sides of that goodness. The flood, like the cross, combines both justice and mercy. The Bible says that in Noah's day the wickedness of man was great, and that the thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually. Well, God's justice required that he destroyed most of the men of that day. But in his mercy, he preserved Noah and his family so they could repopulate the earth. And as a further extension of that mercy, God promised that he would never again destroy the earth by means of a flood. But apparently, in Peter's time, Peter thought that some of his contemporaries had forgotten the lesson of the flood. It seems like that's also true today. Yes, I think that it is. Today, in the same way that Peter mentions, uniformitarianism is the order of our day when it comes to how most of the scientific literature views the history of the Earth. Geologically speaking, uniformitarianism is the idea that present geological processes can explain all past geological occurrences, or in Peter's words, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. But up until the mid to late 19th century, the dominant view among scientists was not uniformitarianism, but it was catastrophism, that sudden and violent events had most affected the Earth's crust. And the scientists of that day viewed catastrophism as a better explanation for what they saw on the Earth than they did that the same processes that were continuing in their day had formed all the prior structures that they saw on the Earth's surface. So again, we're confronted with competing truth claims. 
To explain features that we see on the Earth's surface today, we can turn to uniformitarianism or catastrophism. Well, I don't think it's an either-or, but I think it's more of a both-and. I think both approaches have merit in specific areas of applicability. But as a general approach to what has shaped the Earth's surface, those two potential explanations do stand in contrast to one another. You might say it's roughly the difference between using a crockpot or a pressure cooker. The dinner may arrive on the table, but that doesn't necessarily tell you how it was cooked. Hmm, an interesting visual, but we'll let that go for now. I think most people today would say that uniformitarianism must be right because it gained acceptance later and is what's taught today. Well, uniformitarianism is a possible explanation for what we see around us today. But so is catastrophism, and there is no debate at all that the Earth's surface contains evidence of previous catastrophic events that resulted in dramatic changes to the Earth's surface. The question is not whether one or both explanations are possible, but which hypothesis is the best explanation taking into account the totality of the evidence? And it's on that question that the debate rages. There are reasons that uniformitarianism has gained widespread acceptance. Uniformitarianism is very appealing because in a way we can see it and touch it. We can see water moving, we can see wind blowing, we can see the seasons coming and going, and we can see their impact on the world around us. And it's very tempting to ascribe a cause and effect relationship to causes that we're familiar with, with the causes that we see going on around us every day. And furthermore, even though we've had localized catastrophes, earthquakes or tsunamis or major floods, volcanic eruptions, catastrophes of that type, we've seen catastrophes in our own day that have wreaked havoc on a large area or a large group. Even though we've seen those kind of catastrophes, we haven't seen a truly earth-changing event in over 5,000 years. 5,000 years is a pretty long period of time, and 5,000 years of things staying roughly the same is a long enough period of time to induce some level of complacency in most of us. But familiarity and widespread acceptance don't necessarily make a particular hypothesis or belief, religious or scientific, true. No, the truth stands apart from our opinions or preferences, and it is not at all uncommon for a widely accepted paradigm, religious or scientific, to be displaced when new evidence arises. Your observation is, then, that as new information or discoveries arise, accepted scientific conventions are revised. So seeking the truth requires being willing to consider all the currently available data and observations. Yes, conventional scientific wisdom becomes conventional for a reason. Usually it becomes conventional because the initial premise has proven to be accurate and adequate for a set of initial and subsequent observations but then new observations can give rise to a new hypothesis, and sometimes that requires revisions to be made into what was previously conventional understanding. For instance, Newtonian physics worked perfectly well for the everyday world of the observable, but when we began to be able to delve into the subatomic world, Newtonian physics no longer worked. In the subatomic world, quantum mechanics displaced Newtonian physics. This just means that we have to be alert to the findings of science as opposed to merely being susceptible to the claims of scientists. There's a logical fallacy called an appeal to authority. The fallacy occurs when someone claims something must be true just because a supposed authority believes it. 
Well, uniformitarianism is a truth claim that competes against catastrophism, and today the majority of scientists undoubtedly believe that uniformitarianism is true. And it may be, but it may also be false. We need to consider and investigate both sides of the question using logic, reason, and evidence. But catastrophism obviously fits well with the Bible's description of the flood. Absolutely it does. Well, now I'm going to say something that many of our listeners may have never thought about. The fact that the Bible describes an enormous deluge, a worldwide flood, is in and of itself evidence. In other words, the fact that the Bible describes a worldwide flood is evidence that that flood actually occurred. Uh Uh-oh, that's a fairly dramatic statement. You're saying that rather than science being the only form of evidence about what happened in the distant past, the Bible also has evidentiary value for people seeking the truth. But wouldn't some critics say that you're using a form of circular reasoning, using the Bible as evidence for a flood, when your source for knowing about the flood was the Bible? Well, as you have stated it, that certainly would be circular reasoning. But that's not what I'm saying. As we've seen in some of our previous episodes of Anchored by Truth, there is abundant scientific evidence that one or more gargantuan floods have occurred on the Earth's surface. The highest mountains on the Earth contain marine fossils. There are huge fossil beds all over the Earth that contain the remnants of marine animals, as well as hundreds, thousands, or even millions of land animals all buried together in the same layer of sediment. And some of these fossil beds are hundreds of miles from the nearest contemporary ocean. There are vast layers of sedimentary rock all over the globe, some of which are up to 100 meters thick. And these thick layers are undisturbed by layers of soil or bioturbation, which means they were all laid down at the same time. The best explanation for a lot of this evidence is that there was a huge amount of water moving around on the surface of the Earth at one time, and these astounding hydrological forces deposited a very thick layer of sediment as the water abated. All of these effects on the Earth's surface testify to a biblically-sized flood. So there is good empirical evidence that supports the reliability of the Genesis flood narrative. In other words, we have external confirmation of the story's historicity. And there is good internal evidence from the story as well. The descriptive elements of the biblical narrative stand up very well under scrutiny. The design parameters of the boat make sense from the standpoint of strength and stability that is necessary of ocean-going vessels, particularly one that had to endure gale-like conditions. The ark configuration is similar to modern ocean-going ships, quite different from, say, the cubic shape of the Babylonian flood tale. The size of the boat is such that it could contain a large number of animals and the necessary supplies. The time period the Bible indicates that was allotted to build the ark, somewhere between 50 to 75 years, makes sense when considering the size of the project Noah had to complete. If the Bible had said that Noah had completed the ark in, say, six months, we would have good reason to doubt the Bible's accuracy. But it didn't say that, or have any other nonsensical details that are obvious red flags. Right. The story's internal details make sense, and the narrative possesses the attributes of what is sometimes termed incidental confirmation. For instance, it is a basic axiom of boat design that properly applied ballast is an essential element of a boat's stability. And boats need stability, especially in rough seas. 
Well, when you think about the story of Noah, the ark being loaded in the way that it was, the animals going on board, and enough food being stored on board the ark to last for a year, Noah's ark would have had the most ballast when the seas were the roughest. In other words, all the food that was going to be needed for a year at sea would have been available on board at the beginning of the voyage. And then as the year progressed and the animals and the people ate the food, the amount of food, the amount of ballast would have been reduced considerably. But the ark would have had the most ballast when the seas were the roughest. So again, just an incidental detail about the story makes complete sense when you think about how the ark would have operated in the real world. So the Genesis narrative contains a large number of elements that ring true when examined, including details that are incidental to the main storyline. The incidental details help confirm reliability. Just like the police or courts sometimes test the reliability of a witness by looking for corroborating details. If the witness had a good reason to be in a place to see the robbery, it helps establish their credibility when they do testify as to what they saw. So when you put all that together, you're saying that there is a considerable body of evidence that aligns in favor of the accuracy of the Bible's narrative of the flood event. Yes. So in our reasoning process, we start with the Bible account to see what it describes. We start there, but we don't stop there. Once we've absorbed the story, we proceed to look for evidence for verification that comes from other sources. In this case, looking at geology, paleontology, naval mechanics, etc. So once we see that the basic elements of the story are internally consistent, and then we start looking to see whether there's external evidence, we can conclude that the Bible has a solid claim on basic historical reliability. In other words, when we test the Bible's witness, we find the Bible is a basically reliable witness of the history reports. And this is true, by the way, not just of the Genesis flood account, but for the overwhelming majority of the history that the Bible reports in Scripture. Your line of reasoning, then, is that if the Bible is true for things we can test, we have greater confidence that it is telling the truth in areas we can't test. That's why it's not circular reasoning. The examination and application of external sources of evidence leads from a question to a conclusion. Exactly. And it's important to test the validity of the details of the flood account that can be tested because there are elements of the flood story that we can't test directly, such as the content of the conversations between God and Noah. So, in using the elements of the story that we can test directly and satisfying ourselves that those are basically reliable, that allows us to impart a greater degree of confidence in the parts of the story that we basically have to take, if you will, on faith. And here's another thing that I think a lot of our listeners probably have never thought about. For the purposes of determining its reliability, for the purposes of determining the confidence that we can place in the Bible's basic witness, the Bible deserves to be treated in the same manner as any other document from antiquity. But you don't think that it is. Well, too often I don't think that critics treat the Bible in the same way that they treat other books of antiquity, other books from a similar time period or of a similar age. The Bible has a high degree of basic trustworthiness in the history that it records and reports. Now, admittedly, the Bible is a challenging book because it combines that history with poetry, with allegory, with ethical principles and ethical precepts. So the Bible doesn't just represent a single literary genre. It represents a multitude of literary genres. And, of course, the Bible records supernatural events. 
So I understand that it's reasonable to approach the report of a supernatural event with a certain degree of critical view, with a certain degree of skepticism. But the Bible, when it proves itself worthy of trust and credibility by its basic historical reporting, I think then that that degree of trust or credibility should be extended to the Bible in the things that it reports that we can't verify directly by our own observations or that lie outside of our own experiences. Now, I certainly believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but I think that you come to that conclusion, hopefully, after applying your full degree of intellectual rigor, and hopefully after thinking about the Bible and studying it and satisfying yourself that the Bible is worthy of trust and credibility. So I don't think we should accept the Bible uncritically, and I don't think that we should dismiss the Bible uncritically. And you think both approaches are unwise? I think both approaches are unwise and unreasonable. As we have seen with the story of Noah, the story of Noah definitely contains a supernatural dimension, but it also contains a number of attributes that we can examine historically, scientifically, forensically. And as we discussed earlier, when we take the time to study the details of the story, we can confirm its basic historicity. So when we can confirm the basic historicity of the parts of the account that we can study, that allows us to have greater confidence in the details that we must take on faith. So what you're advocating is not a leap of faith, but a lesson in faith. Study, analyze, and learn, and then make an informed decision based on what you've learned. Exactly. Just because I accept the Bible as the inspired and errant and infallible Word of God doesn't mean that I want to ground my faith in unsupported dogmatic assertions. In fact, the Bible itself doesn't condone that kind of an approach. 1 Peter 3.15 commands us to be prepared to give reasons for the hope that lies within us. Well, to give a reason, we must first apply reason. Well, today has produced a lot of material for further study and reflection. For next time, I think you want to continue with our review and summary of what we can learn from Noah and the Ark. There's probably more there than even most believers normally consider. True that. And as we've stated before, our goal is to help the listeners to the broadcast or the podcast have a solid basis upon which they can continue their own pursuit of study and truth. Today for our closing prayer, how about if we pray for the brave men and women who serve as our first responders and who do so much to keep us safe and healthy in our communities? A prayer for first responders. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we come to you because you are a great God and a merciful God. Lord, we seek your face and your favor for our brothers and sisters who today selflessly perform jobs where they place the health and safety of others above their own. We are so grateful, Lord, that in our community and in every community in our nation, there are brave men and women willing to serve as police officers, firefighters, paramedics, and other first responders. We thank you for each and every one of them, and we pray that you would be their constant companion and guard. Lord, we know that they have all accepted the call to serve a cause greater than themselves. In doing so, they are following the supreme example of your Holy Son, Christ Jesus, who always placed the well-being of his followers over his own. We pray that our first responders will enjoy the blessing of knowing that you are not only their strength, but their Savior. We pray that the peace of Christ that passes all understanding 
would enable them to be strong in their work and service. We pray everything we do and they do would serve to bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you that you have given us a part in your great work. All this we ask in the name of your precious Son and our Lord, Christ Jesus. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.